Welcome to the Sazma Podcast, a new initiative to gather interest in the field of sports medicine and sports science. We hope this series of talks and interviews allows us to shine a spotlight on the various professionals within Sazma and highlights the important work that each individual does in the greater team. Today I sit down with Dr. James Brown, a sports scientist based at Stellenbosch University and Leeds Beckett University and World Rugby, and discuss his work around concussion incidents, head injury assessment, and the data collection he's doing with World Rugby, as well as one of the key studies done which advocated for lowering the tackle height, which was done at Stellenbosch University within the amateur competition. So here we've got Dr. James Brown, who has done his master's and PhD at UCT in exercise science. Yes. And then also has done a master's in public health and health economics at UCT as yeah. well. So James is currently working with World Rugby through Stellenbosch University and a lot of his work and is... Leeds Beckett University. And Leeds Beckett University as well. So a lot of James' work is sort of concussion-related injury surveillance and concussion mostly at the community game. Yeah, so it's Stellenbosch I was focusing on that. With World Rugby, it's obviously mainly focused at the professional level mm. um, at HIAs. Yeah. yeah, so we'll sort of discuss a bit around the amateur game and then obviously with your current work at World Rugby with the HIA and touch on the whole tackle height study that was done at Stellenbosch. So James, firstly, injury surveillance. Obviously, it is important, but from your side, what, what exactly is injury surveillance and why is it important? Why do we do it in specifically rugby? So that I can have a job, <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> so no, the injury surveillance, I think like the concussion is actually a really good working example of why it's important. People will say it's commonly said and it's a common headline that rugby has a concussion problem. You only know if something, an injury is a problem if you do injury surveillance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's important. I mean, if you look at the, so my PhD was supervised by Willem van Mechelen, who has the sequence of prevention model, which all that is, is an occupational health model. So it's assessing if there's an occupational risk and how you do that is the first The first step of that model is injury surveillance to see how big of a problem do you have. And then the second step is why, why are those injuries happening? And the, you need those two pieces of the puzzle to know how to prevent them. Mm. Yeah. And that's obviously a massive part of your work is number one, surveillance and then also the prevention side of it yeah. in terms of rugby and obviously at the professional game it's a lot easier to get sort of data on injuries illness yeah. how do we manage this at the amateur game specifically i mean if we look at your studies at stellenbosch university it's on corsairs rugby yeah. which is corsairs rugby is effectively res rugby yeah so it's a very beer informal league beer league i mean how do you guys manage manage data collection in yeah, it's, sort of that level? It's really tricky in the community level. So in that study you're referring to, we actually, the initial idea, we wanted to get weekly subjective measures from the players. And we did everything we could to incentivize that with take a lot vouchers, prize, everything. They just, there was no compliance basically. So getting data, any data at that level is really difficult. That's a big challenge. Even getting medical data is difficult. So we, you basically have to, you very much have to fashion your study and what you're collecting around what's feasible. Mm. So at Corsair's Rugby, 
they have a really good medical system, but how it works if a player has a suspected concussion and they have independent first aid spotters who are looking for it, players immediately removed from play. But he doesn't have a medical assessment because there are too many players. All they get given is an information sheet about red flags to look out for over the next 48 hours. And they get, it's recommended that they come in to see a campus health doctor. And that's at really subsidized rates. But most players don't ever go for that medical assessment. They're just either not interested or they don't have the time or whatever. So you have very few medical touch points with them. So it's it's tricky. You know, you basically got to do collect whatever data you can. And another big problem with concussion research is a lot of it is based on getting baseline data. Mm-hmm. Getting baseline data on one thousand rugby players at Corsairs Rugby is also almost impossible. The resources you need for that mm-hmm. is difficult. So that's a yeah. There are a lot of challenges. That they what is the setup of the Corsairs Rugby? I mean, how many games are happening at the same time? Depends on the league. So they play every day of the week. And the different days are first league one night, second league the other night, third league. So first league has the most teams, so they literally will have six matches going on at the same time. So you can imagine the medical burden is like is pretty high, having a lot of players coming off for treatment at the same time. And you usually have one doctor stationed at or a nurse from campus health. So you have both a sports doctor and a, a nurse from campus health waiting in the medical room. And they have students who are, have been trained in both first aid and also World Rugby's concussion protocols, online protocols, trying to spot concussions, and then they bring those guys into the medical room. How underrepresented do you think the injury rate of the amateur game is? Just based in on general, what you, yeah, just based on what you're saying there. Uh, yeah, I think it it's it probably is hugely uh, underreported. All injuries, including mm-hmm. concussion, I actually think the concussions are better reported at Corsairs because of that that infrastructure that I just described than some other settings that you'll see because they have a fairly they have good eyes on the game looking for the events I think in general at community level you are just waiting for players to self-report all injuries yeah. including concussion so you only see the very the tip of the iceberg the severe mm. ones yeah, unless you have measures in place to capture it properly yeah yeah and when we compare sort of injury incidents between professional and amateur, what is the, I mean, what is the incidence rate difference between the two games? So in general, if you look at the available literature, the incident rate, incidence is, uh, of injury in general is slightly lower at the amateur level and then at the professional. But there are all these factors that come into it that we just spoke of. And what we noticed and what was surprising for us at Corsair's Rugby was, as you would have expected from the literature, the overall injury rate was lower at Corsair's than at professional level. But what was a bit of a shock is that the concussion rate was fairly similar between the two settings. So our concussion rate was comparable with professional rugby. But then that may well be because... Stellenbosch and Corsair's Rugby had this this good medical infrastructure mm. in place. So maybe their reporting rate is actually pretty good. That was our that was our suspicion. Yeah, so they're actually just picking up more concussions yeah. than even at sort of a semi-professional yeah. uh, professional level. Yeah. Do you think there's any difference between the 
the way your amateur players are conditioned versus your professional in terms of the difference we're seeing in injury rates? Yeah, massively. So even among what I, what I can talk to, what I know from the courses, so describe those four leagues, we know from talking to the players and coaches, so apparently the first league guys do have structured training that involves some sort of contact. Thereafter, it's a mixed bag where you get down to third and fourth league. Those guys are barely meeting before running onto the field. And the intensity of those matches is massive. If, really, if you're still on the sideline, they're really intense matches, and those guys, they might not even be going to gym in between. So they're having very little conditioning, but playing a game at a, at a fairly high And are they still intensity. playing 80-minute games, 40-minute no, halves, or is play, it reduced? They play, yeah, it's reduced, but it's, I mean, it's still intense. Yeah. The intensity of the match is, is yeah. high. So we're probably missing a lot of soft tissue injuries from that as well. Yeah, sure. Where they're just not reporting to the medical yeah. medical team. Yeah, because those in particular would be, that's up to the player to self-report. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably not happening. Yeah. And you obviously mentioned the the SCAT 5. So do, do you guys cover female, sort of female rugby? At, is there sort of a Corsair's league for females? or There hasn't been, but they, for the first time now, there's a varsity cup yeah. for females. And so Stenabosch has a, has a team and we're actually busy doing... Um, we've launched a study where we're tracking, we're doing an ocular motor tremor yeah. measurement on the female players. And so there for the first time, they do have a set infrastructure where all those players are having scats. And yeah, so it's for the first time that I know it's happening at Cinebosch. Okay. And I, I mean, there was the study that you guys looked at, what is it, 10,000 men and 1,000 women. Firstly, massive discrepancy yeah. between the two. Were there major differences between the SCAT 5s that you guys saw in terms of these were baseline tests that you guys yeah. did, eh? Yeah. So, yeah, these are so professional men and women, and this was accessed from the, the um, World Rugby's head injury database. But as you said, importantly, these were, these were baseline SCATs. And so it was really interesting because we did see quite big differences between men and women in terms of their, their baseline SCATs. And the biggest difference was that at... A baseline women tend to endorse more symptoms and greater severity of symptoms than men. I mean, because they baselines, you'd expect them to be pretty similar. So that's important. And also they differed in terms of the more objective measures of the scat. So they were, the females were better than male counterparts in terms of the cognitive, some of the co cognitive sub-modes. Sub and also better in the uh, in the balance components. But as you mentioned when you introduced it, a huge limitation of this is that we literally comparing 10,000 mm -hmm. men to 1,000 women. So maybe you could argue that the men scat findings are representative, but I don't think 1,000 women is yet representative of female rugby players. And that database, luckily, is growing every year, so yeah. we'll need to repeat that study at some point. And did you guys have a, obviously, when we look at the previous concussion history, did you guys have data on the average number per player in the male versus the female? So that's a good point. I don't think we looked at that, but that should be reported as part of the, the standard scat. And I would just, at a guess, I would say males would have had more than females just because training age in men is generally a lot, playing age is a lot higher in men than women. So that could be a big thing. 
But I mean, even if you look at, in terms of something we obviously didn't control for, if you look at menstrual cycle of women in terms of more symptoms being reported, we have no idea whether that had a role. And all of these things are really important when you consider when they come to doing an HIA assessment, it's, mo- it's referenced to baseline. So it's really important to be able to get a handle on those things. Yeah, geez, that's interesting. And I mean, I think it was one of your studies as well where you guys looked at baselines of players with multiple concussions. Yes. I mean, could that also have then... Yeah. So it was interesting about that stay really surprising to me. It was the first time I'd looked at data like this. The bizarre thing is that players have had multiple concussions actually perform better in some domains of the HIA, and we explained that by you get better at it because you are forced to do the test more often if you are concussed. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there, test, retest, reliability, and all of that. So but Clinically, we see that a lot, is that if you actually realize that the guys start memorizing the words, yeah. they know what's coming next. Obviously, your balance is very difficult. That's more an objective measure. Symptoms are quite objective. But that is something that we see as well. And on that, I mean, when you're looking at multiple scats, and obviously we're going to go into your HIA work now as well, which of the the components of the scat would be the most reliable in terms of... Test, retest. Yeah. Sure. That's a good question. I don't know it off the top of my head. I would imagine the more objective domains are more reliable. Yeah. So, so I would imagine like, balance yeah. would be a more reliable test. But I mean, even with balance, there also are different ways that people do the same test. I mean, I've seen in games of rugby, some players wearing boots, some players not wearing boots. So it's very tricky to have in, in these sports settings and professional sports settings to have very highly standardized tests. And I think that's why the hunters on for a truly objective measure. Oh. And so why there's all this focus on looking at variations of eye tracking tests mm-hmm. and the hope is that one of them will, not, certainly not, it's not being looked at to replace this gap, but might add a domain that yeah. might be useful as an objective. And again, to try and make sure that we're returning players safely, yeah. minimizing risk of re-injury, re-concussion or exactly. re-concussion. Exactly. So, Obviously now we're chatting SCAT and your work is mostly in the HIA, which is the head injury assessment. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your current work with World Rugby in terms of the data collection around the HIAs. And Yeah, so my day-to-day, uh, what I do is probably pretty boring to most people, but the big picture is, is important. So what, what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is ensuring that what's recorded in the HIA database reflects clinical reality as close as possible. So that involves sometimes following up specifically with doctors about particular HIA events and just make, if something looks a bit strange or just making sure that it, yeah, as I said, it reflects as close as possible what happened when the, when the doctors were playing. And that's all important because then when we look at the data, we can, we can help to optimize the process once we know that we have 100% accurate data that we're looking at. So I'll give you an example. At the moment, we are busy looking at whether criteria one and criteria two players differ through the HIA process. 
because just by looking at the events on the field, you would think, oh, well, obviously criteria one players are worse than criteria two players. But actually, as far as I know, there's no evidence yet that, that supports that notion. So myself and Ross Tucker are busy looking at when players enter the process, whether they are criteria one or criteria two, looking at how they perform at HI2 phase, HI3 phase, and seeing uh, do they differ. Okay, so currently there's not data to suggest that a criteria one does better or worse than somebody not that not that standard that criteria seen. two. No. Interesting. Yeah. So those are the sort of things we're looking at and also looking at when we factor in the time it takes for a player to return to play after a concussion, looking at sort of what factors are associated with that. Like if say for example you look at how they performed in their HI three, like does does that have any relationship with how long they take to return to play. And all of those things help with sort of uh, risk stratifying the return to play process. So almost you guys are trying to see if we can predict how how long a player will be out for. Yeah, or pick Just up certain factors that are indicative that or associated with players taking longer to return to play. So we know, okay, players who perform or have really poor symptom reporting, report a lot of symptoms at HI3, if that's associated with longer return to play or multiple previous concussions or concussions that are very close mm. to the previous one. If we know that, if we have evidence to support it, then that can be added to the return to play or to ensure, yeah, as you said, that players are as close to, as far as we can tell, mm. clinically normal before returning to play. And just for context, this is all data that's been entered via the uh, Scrum app. Now the Scrum app, exactly. Which was CSX before. Exactly. Okay. Um, okay. So I know some doctors find the whole, that process really irritating and a lust, but the, it does have a really useful function mm -hmm. in terms of like looking at the actual HI process and ensuring that it's as good as it can. And how far are you guys into that research at the moment? Uh, we pretty far. The one paper looking at how long factors associated with players return to play, we're almost ready to submit that. Okay. And then we've started looking at um, the analysis of comparing criteria one and criteria, criteria two players and how they perform. Yeah, that'll actually be very interesting. Eh? Like I, again, anecdotally, from the last three or four criteria ones that we've had, I feel like they do better symptom resolution gets is sooner as opposed to a criteria two. Yeah. It obviously looks a lot more traumatic when it happens as a criteria one where they've got tonic posturing or they're just loss of consciousness. But anecdotally, the last sort of four criteria ones I've had actually responded a lot better than the almost like the subclinical type concussion Yeah, where they just come off and maybe a bit of a headache or a bit of daze, daziness, and you do this cat and you figure out that they've got symptoms. So that, that work would be quite interesting just, just to see if there's... Yeah, it's funny you say it's a, it, the, a, a doctor who works with a professional team uses a term, he says he thinks criteria one players, it's almost like their brains have had a, the reboot button pressed yeah. and that they come back online and look, they actually res look clinically better, exactly as you said, than criteria two players yeah. sooner, which is really interesting. Unfortunately, we... At HI1 stage, you obviously don't do an HI1, you don't do an off-field uh, assessment on those players. 
that yeah. would be really interesting to see how they perform in terms of symptoms, balance tests. Yeah, but you can compare them at HIA two phase, yeah. which is post match. Yeah, so that will be interesting. Which again, they they often would still have quite a lot of persistent symptoms. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. Now talking about HIA, and obviously with all the concussion talk, we're going to chat about tackle height, which is more the study that you guys did in Stellenbosch, because obviously now with the whole possible regulation change, there were effectively three main studies quoted. That was your guys' study in Stellenbosch, the French and the RFU study. Yeah. And your guys' study was again done in the community games, yeah. so that would be more Corsais. Corsais league, yeah. And you guys mm-hmm. assess tackle height down to the armpit as opposed exactly. to, correct me if I'm wrong, the French who went sort of waist or navel. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, French have gone yeah. naval waste. Yeah. Just talk us through that study. I mean, what were some of your guys' findings? Again, we know this whole, the regulation around dropping the tackle height still very much in its infancy. Yeah. Because at this point, we don't even know how, how high the tackle needs to be or how low it needs to be dropped. But I mean, what did you guys find in your guys' study? So the we were supposed to do two seasons of the lower tackle height to armpit and COVID came along in the second season. So unfortunately, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. We started to see positive indications, like a reduction in concussion rate. It wasn't significantly different. So there was an overall 30% reduction, but it's the confidence interval spanned over, over one. And that might be because we had a numbers issue because we only had one season instead of two. Mm. So there, yeah, there's some unanswered questions there from like purely data perspective. We got pretty positive feedback, certainly from the doctors who were seeing their perception was that they, they were dealing with fewer concussions in the low tackle height year. And then there was, there was a whole range of perceptions and feelings from actual coaches and players. Some players had no idea, even at the end of the season, that the tackle heights had been adjusted. And correct me if I'm wrong, you guys did quite a bit of education around this. We did. We had we invited all players and coaches to a couple of sessions before the season started, but very few arrived. I think there were maybe six coaches. and But we did also provide a communication video explaining what was and what wasn't changing in the season the rugby club distributed a couple of times to all of their members, which included the players, the coaches. So then we ended up actually focusing our attention on the referees and the referees were actually very receptive. And luckily that's also just lucky with the Stellenbosch infrastructure. They are trained in the stadium. And I mean, some really good referees that we know of now came from that Mm -hmm. training academy. And though the referees were really receptive to it and so initially, in the, there was a bit of confusion from them in the first couple of weeks, but by midway through the season, they felt very confident uh, doing it. And, and their communication to us was actually it isn't that different to normal order. All it did was was highlight high tackles for them, which, I mean, should be... So in some ways, it just focused or highlighted an existing law. Mm. And they said the... First couple of matches, there was some negative response from the players, but thereafter, they didn't even notice it. Yeah, that's um, my next question. What was the initial reaction to the players when they were obviously now told that there's going to be a change in... Yeah, so, so the few of the few coaches who arrived, there was 
one who's quite outspoken and got a bit so his main issue with it was that he was worried ball carriers were now gonna dip unnecessarily into into contact to milk to create a, a, a high tackle scenario, yeah. Yeah. None of the referees we spoke to thought they ever saw that actually happen. I actually think it's probably a lot more difficult to do in in reality. So it, it wasn't that there was a little bit of negativity in the first couple of matches or more players saying they didn't know what was going on when there were penalties given for high tackles. But the thing is that happens in regular regulation tackle height anyway. There will be players who contest whether it was high or not. So I don't think that was, that was such a big thing. And the negativity of the coaches soon dissipated. We didn't have any further feedback or issues as the season as they got into the, uh, the proper season. And the, the study was done over, over 2018 and 19, eh? So the lower tackle height was in the 2019 season. And, and the 2018 had been, it was supposed to be a regular season, but if you remember, there was drought year in the Western Cape. So unfortunately, that was completely out of our hands as well. That season was curtailed. You could only start sport after July, I think it was. There was a Western Cape's directive. So that season was a lot shorter than normal. So that's a, that was another problem with that with that study, which is yeah, it's just something there's nothing we can do about. It. And is there plans to maybe relook at? I'm not sure. I mean, now that now that sport has gone back online, like I think I think Stenwash will always be a really good place to trial laws. This wasn't the first law that was trialed there. I think the ELVs were trialed years ago there. So. I think it would be a good site to maybe retry any law trial, including this one. Yeah, because um, I guess they've also got such a robust sort of amateur game. Yeah, exactly. Which, which again is well controlled by a centralized point. Yeah, exactly. So good medical infrastructure, good administrative structure, and lots of players. And we introduced in that 2018 season a fairly standardized way of recording injuries, which also helps in terms of like making sure injury yeah. surveillance is accurate. So, yeah, and we also in the 2019 season launched was a suggestion from Marty Sport that, that the referees will go pros on their heads, which that provided really good footage. And actually the head of the referees found it the most useful because then you are seeing what the referees saw. And it also was really good for our video, video analysts for that study. They had really close-up footage and accurate footage. And outside of the study, are those games sort of, uh, is there somebody recording those games that you can go back and look at incidents or no not ordinarily we put that infrastructure in okay. place for the study so that would be the only thing that would have to be the infrastructure that would have to be paid for and um, to do a study but yeah. it's really if i if i do it again i wouldn't worry about we also had scaffolding set up in wide angle i wouldn't worry about that i would just try and get all referees wearing uh, head mounted gopros you get really good footage from mm. it well, we can wait and see if that, uh, that happens. Yeah. James, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah, it was cool chatting about concussions and everything that goes along with it. Yeah.